Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Darlene Weaver. I'm on the faculty in the Department of Theology and, and Religious Studies here. Um, I met Beverly Gaventa almost five years ago. It's kind of hard to believe it's been that long, uh, when we were both on leave from our respective institutions, and we were fortunate enough to be members at the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey. I immediately became a fan of both her work uh, and her wit, and it's really my pleasure to be able to welcome her to Villanova today. Uh, Beverly Roberts Gaventa is the Helen H. P. Manson Professor of New Testament Literature and Exegesis at Princeton Theological Seminary. She earned her bachelor's degree from Phillips University, her MDiv from Union Theological Seminary in New York, and her doctorate from Duke University. She holds honorary degrees from Kalamazoo College and Christian Theological Seminary. Before joining Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, she taught at Colgate-Rochester Divinity School and at Columbia Theological Seminary. In addition to numerous articles and reviews, Dr. Gaventa has written several books, including Our Mother, St. Paul, which just came out in 2007, The Acts of the Apostles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Mary, Glimpses of the Mother of Jesus. That was just out, actually, when we met. Um, and Time Magazine did a piece on it. Uh, From Darkness to Light, Aspects of Conversion in the New Testament. She's also edited several volumes, the most recent of which is The Ending of Mark and the Ends of God. Her current project is a commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. Dr. Gaventa is a member of the American Theological Society, the Catholic Biblical Association of America, um, uh, and the Society of Biblical Literature, where she has served in a variety of leadership roles. She's also served on a number of editorial boards. She currently holds membership on the editorial boards of the Journal of Theological Interpretation and the Journal of Reformed Theology. Dr. Gaventa's work on Paul is careful insightful and provocative, and you're all in for a treat. So please join me in welcoming Beverly Gaventa. Thank you, Darlene. Um, we had a wonderful time together at CTI, and I can't believe it's been that long. That means Jack is practically in college. Well, thank you all for coming out. It's it's a treat for me uh, to be here and to have a chance to uh, think aloud with you for a little while about Paul's letter to the Romans. For those who hear the Apostle Paul referred to only in worship and only occasionally at that, it may come as a surprise to learn that our information about him is actually quite limited. We have a handful of letters that he wrote, perhaps as few as seven. It depends on the scholar who's counting. It's not that we can't count. It's just that we have quibbles about which ones he wrote and which ones other people wrote. We also have a number of stories about him in the Acts of the Apostles. Although that book was actually written several decades after uh, Paul's own life, and uh, it's difficult sometimes to discern uh, how accurate the information is about Paul's life and ministry. We have another set of letters that is attributed to him, probably letters written by people in the Pauline churches uh, who were speaking to their own situations, but with the voice of Paul. Um, there's a cryptic remark at the end of 2 Peter about how Paul's letters are hard to understand and susceptible of misinterpretation by the ignorant and unstable. Surely one of the most reliable comments in the New Testament. <laughs> I 
I may join myself to the unstable before the afternoon is over. And we have some early Christian traditions about his life that were not included in the canon. But virtually nothing in those traditions has any claim to historical accuracy. Uh, just to give you an example of why, why I would say that so boldly, according to uh, one second or maybe third century text, the Acts of Paul, when Paul was beheaded, what spewed forth from his body was actually milk. You know, it's, it's hard to credit that with any um, uh, grain of historical truth, even for those of us who are great fans of the Apostle. Yet, however limited our sources may be for understanding the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, his influence on Christian tradition is beyond calculation. And among Paul's letters, without question, the most influential is Romans. It's the longest. That's the reason why canonically it comes at the beginning of the Pauline corpus. And it's certainly the most important in the history of Christian thought. That is true across uh, Western theology, both Catholic and Protestant. To mention only the most influential, we have either full commentaries or uh, extensive collections of sermons or other reflective writings on Romans from Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and in the last century, Karl Barth. So it is fitting that as we celebrate a whole year of Paul, we set aside at least part of an afternoon for his letter to the Romans. That the letter was written by the apostle himself, there seems virtually no doubt. In the early letters, uh, years of critical study, a group of German scholars now known to us as the Tübingen School argued that only four of, Paul, of the letters attributed to Paul were actually written by him. Yet even among this most suspicious group of readers, Romans was regarded as certainly Pauline. Now when I make a statement of that sort, it makes it sound as if Paul wrote by sitting at his desk the way I sit at mine and writing as an isolated individual who had a particular set of ideas he wanted to convey to the world at large or to some other specific community. Already the analogy suggests something of a problem with this kind of lone ranger notion because none of us writes alone. Even if we are, uh, I remember these days, frantically writing a term paper at 3 a.m., and ours is the only uh, window in the dorm where the light still burns, we write with other people. The other person at that point, or persons, may be uh, the teacher who helped us to understand what a term paper should look like, or the professor whose goodwill and good grade we'd like to earn, uh, or the parent who struggles to pay tuition when the economy has gone bad. But nobody writes alone. In the case of Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, the letter itself already suggests that Paul is not writing alone. At the very end of the letter, he sends a set of greetings to a number of people at Rome. Now, th I, I put these texts on your handout so that uh, uh, you could have at least a little bit of uh, to jog your memory. At the beginning of chapter 16, or the third verse of chapter 16, he writes this. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life. And he goes on and on. And he says, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. He goes on after this point to greet some 23 other individuals or families by name. Now bear in mind that Paul had not, when he wrote the letter, had not ever been to Rome. So I imagine what he does here is to greet them by name as a way of making connections. These days we would call it networking. He makes these connections with the people he does know 
in order to prepare for what he hopes will be his own visit there in the near future and his attempt to get support from them for his ministry. He greets people he has worked with, people he knows only slightly, and perhaps some people he doesn't know at all. He only knows them by name or knows them indirectly. There's an analogy with Facebook that I'm tempted to come up with, but my, feeble, my fumbling around on Facebook is pretty limited. My point in all this is to say that at least some of these people whom he names are at the front of Paul's thinking as he writes. They are influencing the way he writes. Just before this extended set of greetings, Paul writes a brief uh, letter of introduction for a woman by the name of Phoebe. That's also, I've, I've copied that also on your handout. <coughs> he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Now, this little passage is very easy to skip. It's very easy to overlook altogether because most readers of Romans are frankly exhausted by the time they get to chapter 16. And this comment seems pretty pedestrian. Okay, I got her name, I'll go on to the next part with all those other unpronounceable names. Nothing much here seems at first glance to be of interest. But what's interesting to me is that Paul's letters conform to a fairly standard pattern. And these comments about Phoebe are without parallel elsewhere in Paul's letters. Now, that's a statement. These comments are unique in Paul's letters. It's true, but you need, it's the sort of thing you need to watch when a scholar says that. Because some might object that it doesn't mean a lot. The list of greetings that I gave you part of is also without parallel in Paul's other letters, although he does sometimes close with general greetings to the whole congregation. But again, there are good reasons to offer those greetings. As I said, he hasn't been there. Uh, and there are good reasons for this extended introduction of Phoebe. Because just as Paul is unknown uh, at Rome, that is, he has not been there, Phoebe also is unknown. Nevertheless, even allowing for the fact that this is a kind of unusual situation, what he says about her is worth paying attention to. First of all, he identifies her as a diakonos, a deacon of the church of Cancrea. There is no Greek word deaconess at this period. <clears throat> and when I pick up a new translation of the Bible, one of the things I do is to check this passage to see how it's treated. Because that Greek word diakonos has been rendered with a range of English nouns, uh, ranging from deacon to minister to servant to deaconess. To be sure, in the small and emerging congregations of the first century, a diakonos, a deacon, is not someone who enters into a fixed period of training and after that carries out a certain specific set of roles in the life of the church. The church's organization simply had not moved to that level, especially in the middle of the first century. Uh, still, for Paul, the term must connote something of significance because he applies it both to Jesus himself in chapter 15 of Romans. He applies it to himself, Paul, in 1 Corinthians and also in 2 Corinthians. So when Paul says that Phoebe is a deacon, he probably doesn't mean just that she helps out in the kitchen or that she is what one paraphrase I'm aware of calls a good Christian woman. That may be true, but that's not what he's saying. There's some, surely some, some, some role of leadership involved here, however uh, difficult it is for us to tease out exactly what that looked like. Now, that hunch is underscored when we go back to the text and see that Paul also refers to Phoebe as a prostatus, which again has been translated in an interesting array of ways. A helper, a leader, 
an assistant, and a benefactor. The most straightforward translation would be either patron or benefactor. In the first century as now, the term implies that she has been supportive in some concrete ways. And notice that Paul asks that the Romans welcome her. A better translation might be receive her. This is the language that's used of official envoys. Uh, Phoebe is Paul's ambassador to the Romans. She is his representative in some rather official way. So, now, what do we have? Paul, uh, Phoebe is some sort of leader in a local congregation near Corinth. She is a person of some means. I'm deducing that from the fact that, Phoebe, that Paul refers, I can't get Phoebe and Paul straight now, I'm calling each of them by the other's name. Um, Paul refers to her as a benefactor, um, so presumably she has some resources. She has resources that enable her to travel to Rome, and apparently she has money of her own, because if she were working with her husband or her husband's money, Paul would almost certainly have made reference to the husband. That would have been the custom. When we read closely then, it appears that Paul is very careful in what he says about Phoebe. Almost certainly, that is because she is the one who is bringing the letter. Male service, such as it was, was notoriously unreliable. And anyone who had a letter to send was well advised, and generally did, seek out some individual traveling to that destination in order to send the letter along. And I don't know about what the mail is like in Villanova, uh, but in Princeton, I'm tempted to take that up once again when I see how slow the mail is. <clears throat> On this point, there's general agreement. What I've said is pretty standard uh, treatment of, of Phoebe in the scholarly literature. But in my judgment, there's yet another point to make, which is that Phoebe is also the one who reads the letter. If Phoebe reads the letter, that also means that Phoebe is the first interpreter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, that may seem like wild feminist imaginings, but it's actually pretty obvious. To translate this to our own context, think of the difference, if you can, between, if you can hold it in your mind at the same time, between MSNBC and Fox News. <laughs> Along with millions of other people, maybe billions, I, I don't know what the estimate was, I watched the coverage of President Obama's inauguration two weeks ago. And at one point, I flipped back and forth, as some of you may have done, between those two networks, just for curiosity's sake. Not surprisingly, they could cover the very same event and even read some of the same headlines, uh, but the facial expressions, the tone of voice, the mannerisms on the two channels did much to suggest their interpretation. For the people at MSNBC, the inauguration was the arrival of America's savior. I mean, it was nothing less than that. For the people at Fox News, it was the, depart de excuse me, it was the departure of America's hero. It even had to do with what they were showing on the screen at a given time. So, to go back to the first century, almost inevitably, Phoebe shaped the letter by the way she read it. Did she rush through some passages? Did she linger over others? Did she stop to add an explanatory note at certain points? Of course, what I'd love to know is where was she stopped by them? Phoebe had a role in interpreting the letter. She and Paul may well even have talked about what sort of delivery he wanted, what he wanted her to be sure they got out of this. But when the time came, and especially as questions or objections arose, Phoebe was almost certainly on her own. There was no text messaging to allow her to check and see exactly what he wanted to say at a given point. Now, it would be interesting to go on and imagine 
what specific contributions she might have made. Imagination is essential for the hearing of an ancient text. But too much imagination lands us in the region of fiction. What's important in all this discussion about Phoebe is not that we learn specifically how she read or what she may have said afterward, but because it helps us in two ways. First, it helps us to appreciate the contributions women made to early Christianity. And I think it is still the case that most of us need to be reminded of that fact. And second, it helps, to helps us to appreciate what was involved in the composing, the delivering, the reading, and the hearing of any early Christian letter, of any early Christian text, for that matter. Now, now at this point we have entered a world that I suspect is genuinely strange to our experience. We scarcely have any have letters anymore. Uh, maybe at Christmas time we do. We have emails and text messages and blogs, or somebody has text messages. I can't do that. Uh, on those rare occasions when we do have a letter, uh, we read the letter. I read my letters. You read your letters. I don't read your letters. You don't read my letters. And most of us read our letters individually privately and silently. Now maybe over, over Advent, as, as Christmas greetings come in from other families, you might be in the kitchen in the evening and one of you would read the letter to the rest of the family, but by and large, we read alone. In the ancient world, this was not the case. First, although there are scholarly debates about the literacy rate, it seems clear that the percentage of the population that could read and write was actually quite low. Second, as important, probably more important, there was no inexpensive or easy way to copy a text or to distribute it. So written works of many kinds, histories, philosophical texts, novels, were by most people experienced through the ear rather than through the eye. They heard things. They didn't read things themselves. Paul concludes his earliest letter, or what many scholars think is his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, with a very strongly worded demand that the letter must be read to the members of the congregation. Even with a very short letter, and 1 Thessalonians is, a, is really quite brief, he didn't expect individuals to pass the letter around. He anticipated that one person, or at least one person at a time, would read to the whole group. This procedure underscores the importance of the reader, but it also suggests something about the composition of a letter or any other ancient document. It was written for the ear. So, now we can ask, what is it that the Romans heard when Phoebe read? In one sense, the answer to that question can be uh, gotten rather simply by just moving through the letter and looking at various texts, various topics that are addressed. They heard about Paul's desire to be in Rome. They heard an extended discussion about the good news of God's action in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, an action that marks God's reclaiming of the world from powers of sin and death. They heard a discussion that was couched very much in the language of scripture. More than any other of Paul's letters, here he quotes scripture and he talks about scripture. Here the language he speaks almost is, is the dialect of scripture. They heard Paul uh, reflect in, and I think, a genuine anguish about his own people, the people of Israel and how God was dealing with them. The Romans also heard Paul's instructions about their behavior, especially about some quarrels they seem to have had about whether Christians would observe Jewish practices regarding food. 
And they also heard his plans for traveling to Jerusalem, to Rome, and on to Spain. Now, there's a great deal more we could say about that. Many, 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 way too many books have been written on even the most minute passages in Romans. But when people read, and even more when they hear, they are affected both by the content, exactly what was said, about what topic, and also about the style, about the rhetoric, by the rhetoric of a letter. Along with many other Americans, perhaps the vast majority, I strongly suspect, even a year ago, I thought it was wildly improbable that Senator Barack Obama would become President Barack Obama. And then something happened that impressed me. A group of friends of mine, all of whom happened to be Presbyterian ministers, were having, I, I hang out with them a lot, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I could say something about Jesus loving everybody, but that would be tacky. Um, they were having a conference. This group gathers once a year to work on lectionary texts for the following year. It's a group of bright, very well-educated folks, and they're very experienced preachers. They know a lot about oral delivery. This group is not easily fooled or easily impressed. A year ago, their annual gathering happened to coincide with Obama's victory in the Iowa caucuses. And late that night, many of them gathered in the TV room of their retreat center to watch his speech. By the end of that memorable speech, when he was calling out repeatedly, yes, we can, the group, at least this is the story that came to me, they were all standing up and responding to the figure in the television with their own responses, yes, we can. Whether they intended to be moved or not, they were simply swept along. Not just by the content of what was being said, but by the force of the delivery, by the rhetoric of it. Now, as many of you will know, the Greeks made a formal study of rhetoric. They made it into a sophisticated science, and rhetoric was part of the educational system at least the education of young men of certain classes. But even those who were not formally educated in rhetoric were influenced by the practice of it. They knew, they knew the styles. Just in the same way that most of us have never read Freud, but we know what a Freudian slip is. A significant number of students of ancient Christianity have taken those ancient sources for example, Aristotle or Quintilian, have taken them as starting points for investigating the writings of early Christians, especially Paul. These studies, I have to say, are carried out in a way that begins with theoreticians and then moves to Paul's letters, which is fine. What happens along the way is sometimes they crash on a big rock called jargon. Uh, what I want to do here is not so technical, I hope, although it will touch on some of the issues that you would find in uh, a formal rhetorical analysis of Romans. What I want to do is draw attention to three major features of the style of Romans. What Phoebe's audience might have heard that would cause them to pay attention, and then say a bit at the end about why I think he chose exactly this, one of the features that he chose. First of all, Paul uses a variety of literary constructions that might well have held the interest of his audience. Now this is a topic you would find in any formal rhetorical analysis. And one of the strengths of, of I, I get no money from this endorsement, but one of the strengths of the major new commentary by Robert Jewett in the Hermeneus series is the patient detailed attention he gives to these specific constructions. And a lot of them are not available to us in English translation. For example, Paul engages in word plays, often word plays that we can't do justice to in English. In a very famous passage in chapter 8, which most of us have heard at funerals, he writes, who will bring any charge against God's elect? In Greek, however, 
The word translated, it's a, one word, to bring a charge against, is related to and sounds similar to the word elect. So it's a, a crude translation would be, who will call out the ones God has called? That is, who will call against the ones God has called? Or at 12.3, he says, uh, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think with sober judgment. That's the NRSV. And the translators have tried to catch the repeti repetition of the verb think. But it's very hard to show Paul's elegance here. Robert Jewett manages with uh, the kind of with a rather clever translation, don't be super-minded above what you ought to be minded, but set your mind on being sober-minded. And that's pretty much what Paul writes. Another, excuse me, another construction Paul uses, and this one does come through in translation, is that of uh, gradation or gradatio, where he moves from one phrase to another, each time taking up a word in the previous phrase to make a kind of rhetorical climax. So in Romans 5, he says, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Or in chapter 6, uh, chapter 8, those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom God called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, and in chapter 10, how are they to call on one whom they have not, in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in one in whom, of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim? How are they to proclaim without being sent? I can imagine Phoebe playing on this in order to keep her audiences awake and alert. The audience is also kept listening, I think, when there's a shift from long, elaborate sentences, uh, in Greek we call them periods, to those that are short and punchy. In Paul's complex discussion of God and Israel in Romans 9 through 11, the sentences are often quite lengthy and difficult, as my students in Greek find out pretty quickly. When he turns away from that topic in chapter 12 and takes up ethical instructions, he does so with short, pithy statements like, let love be genuine, bless those who persecute you, do not repay anyone evil for evil. I kind of imagine those whose eyes have glazed over with Romans 9 through 11 uh, becoming alert again when they get to these short uh, uh, statements of exhortation. There are many, many, many more examples of that sort. <clears throat> A second feature of the style of Romans is that the letter proceeds in a way that is highly textured. I need a better term for this, and I don't have it yet. The topics Paul takes up are deeply interconnected with one another. In fact, I think it may be helpful to think of them as threads that are woven together in some intricate pattern, some textile. Uh, the British, British scholar N.T. Wright has helpfully compared the structure of Romans with that of a symphony in which uh, themes are stated and developed, recapitulated in a different key, anticipated in previous movements, and echoed in subsequent ones. Now, this is a, a, a feature of the letter that's difficult to identify with a concise formal label, but it's somewhat easier to demonstrate. Just after the standard opening greeting, Paul makes an observation about how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And we might expect him to go on and tell us what he means by that. He does, but he's, he waits for two chapters before he does that. After he's given us a long discussion of the problems of Jews and Gentiles that prompt God's action. Meanwhile, in the middle, in chapter 2, he makes comments about the law of Moses one of the defining features of Judaism. He again comes back in chapter 3 to the Law of Moses 
He touches on it only very briefly, just keeps coming back to it in 4 and 5 and again in 6. And he finally comes back and says, I think, what he has to say in chapter 7. Meanwhile, way back at the beginning of chapter 3, he makes a bold statement about how there are many advantages given to Jews. But he, then he stops and just leaves it altogether, leaves it hanging there, uh, returning to develop it only in chapters 9 through 11. Now, I can think of at least a couple of scholars who complain about this and who think that Paul has a short intention span and he can't develop his argument. And I have to concede that my 10th grade English teacher would have said this was bad writing, or at least it was very bad organization. In her literary world, and I confess I like this from my students, writers were expected to organize what they had to say. Or, as the king puts it in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, begin at the beginning, go on till you come to the end, and then stop. <laughs> Now, any number of scholarly analyses of Paul's letter to the Romans treat it as just that sort of clearly organized linear argument. And that's fine until you actually read the letter. Uh, as one put it, student put it to me some years ago, Paul moves from sin to salvation to sanctification. Well, yes, sort of. But he keeps coming back to sin, and he talks about salvation at the beginning. It's just not that tidy. There are, of course, some nicely demarcated passages. Chapters 9 through 11 form a single unit, beginning with Paul's passionate cry about Israel and ending with his uh, assuring word that God intends salvation for all people. He has a discussion in chapters 14 and 15 about various factions in the church. That's a pretty clearly demarcated passage. The discussion of his travel is, is nicely isolated. The greetings at the end of the letter. Yet even those passages are far more interconnected than people often realize. What Paul has to say about God's dealings with Israel especially when he uses the language of calling, God calls Israel into being in chapters 9 through 11, he's already anticipated that at the end of chapter 8 with the language of calling. In chapter 4, when he talks about the calling into being of Isaac, the child of Abraham. In chapter 3, the calling of Israel. Even in the opening lines of the letter, when he talks about his own calling. So this textured structure, this symphony, as Wright would have it, makes sense, of course, in a work that is to be heard rather than read. Paul didn't have handouts so people could follow, could follow on if they got lost. When we take in information by reading, we do begin at the beginning and we proceed through until the end, as the king demanded in Wonderland so that we can build an argument out of blocks. A leads to B, B leads to C, if we're lucky. Of course, we have a different uh, experience again now that we take in information often on the web. Since we may begin with point A and leap into point 22 and back again to another subject altogether. I had that quote from Lewis Carroll wandering around in my head and I finally looked it up online. And when I did, I ended up reading a little article about Penelope Lively, who is a British novelist I happen to like. You know, and it has nothing to do with Lewis Carroll that I know of. <coughs> but when we take in information by the ear, especially when we're listening to a lengthy work of some complexity, we need reminders. We need landmarks of a different sort, recalling what has been said, linking topics together, forging memory. So Paul uses standard literary constructions, but he also organizes the letter in a way that will make it easy for an audience to hear and remember. But there's a third feature of the style of Romans uh, that I think is often overlooked. And that is that Paul employs a series 
of argumentative feints. This is the part that has become fascinating to me recently. At several points in the letter, Paul leads his hearers to expect a rather specific conclusion. I think he does it deliberately. And then just at the point when that conclusion might seem obvious, inescapable, he twists the argument sharply and sends it off in another direction. Something of a literary bait and switch. Uh, I don't mean that Paul is a charlatan, that's the, what that phrase would suggest, I suppose, but that he really is, uh, there's an element of um, playfulness here that I think it serves a purpose. For example, in chapter 2, Paul sets out to undermine the standard distinctions Jews would have made between Jews and Gentiles. In Jewish literature of this period, it's not at all unusual to find assumptions about the immorality of Gentiles, since Gentiles do not have God's law and cannot be obedient to God. And by the way, non-Jewish writers, Gentile writers, had far more caustic things to say about Jews. This was not a one-way uh, street. Some Gentiles, Paul writes, who don't even have the law of Moses, but who live as if they did, they have the law written on their hearts. And he goes on, some Jews who talk as if they live by the law and boast of being Jews, they actually don't follow the law at all. He goes on to say that being a real Jew is not an outward matter visible for all to see, but it is instead a spiritual matter. And he does this at some bewildering length. Then he asks the obvious question, what is the advantage of the Jew? What is the value of being circumcised? The only logical answer he can give is, there's not any. And instead of saying that, the one thing the audience must expect him to say, he says, much in every way. God has given to Jews the oracles of God in scripture, he says. God has been faithful much in every way. In that instance, the abrupt shift in the argument is pretty obvious. But some instances of the argumentative feint are far less obvious. One of those, and this is on the back, I have some texts on the back of your handout that you may want for this. One of these places is in the middle of chapter 3, where Paul quotes a series of passages from Scripture. Uh, mostly from the Psalms. Now, uh, most of the time when Paul cites scripture, he cites it in order to talk about Jesus the Messiah or about the future of Israel. But this one, this selection, is about humanity entirely, and as you can see, it is relentlessly negative. You know, I, I just don't think we're going to be singing this in church anytime soon. It begins with the cheery words, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And then it goes on. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. And a little later on, their throats are open to graves. They use their tongues to deceive. And it goes on. There is no light in this passage. Uh, Richard Hayes has said this is a veritable litany of condemnation. Now, as I mentioned, these are all quotations from Scripture, largely taken from the Psalms. And they all come from Psalms that follow a fairly standard format, a format with which people who knew the Psalms would be familiar. They begin, all of these psalms begin with, I've given you part of Psalm 5 just as an example. They begin with lines that accuse the wicked of evil behavior, but then they turn to announce that God will judge the wicked. God will rescue the innocent. So when he says their throats are opened graves, they use their tongues to deceive, which comes from Psalm 5, the psalm, as you can see, continues with, make them bear their guilt, O God. But then it turns in the last lines, 
Uh, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. Now, that's a fairly standard move in the Psalms, as it is in most of the biblical wisdom literature. And I think what Paul is doing is intentionally playing on this. He sets people up to conclude that he will end with a call to repentance, or he will end with some promise that God is going to save the good people and judge, damn the, uh, the wicked. Instead of that expected move, what he says is, there is no one at all who does what is good, that the whole world is accountable to God. No one is justified by their actions. And of course, having rammed that home, what he does in the passage that immediately follows is to talk about the death of Jesus and its salvific uh, uh, grasp of all humanity. One more example must suffice, and this is probably the most important instance in Romans of the argumentative faint. It appears in his long and convoluted discussion of God's dealings with Israel in chapters 9 through 11. By about two-thirds of the way through that discussion, Paul has said, among other things, that God called Israel into being. Only God's intervention has saved Israel until the present day. Israel has stumbled. The good news has been preached to Israel and they haven't responded. Finally, he speaks uh, words of Isaiah. Uh, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. And then he asks, has God rejected God's people? The only possible answer he can give, given what he's been writing, is yes. But instead he says, no, by no means. And later on he says, all Israel will be saved. He's constructed this relentless argument that suggests that Israel is lost, only to turn it on its head. Now, why does he do this? It's easy to understand the first two features of Romans, uh, the style of Romans, the various verbal constructions, plays on words, uh, the symphonic structure. An audience that hears needs to be engaged and helped throughout the reading of a text. But this third feature of the letter is somewhat harder to understand. Why does he do this? One possibility is that Paul knows that his audience at Rome is more sophisticated, more urbane, and he needs to speak to them in forms that they will appreciate. They will appreciate these rather sophisticated uh, rhetorical strategies. That may be true. I think it's not the whole of the explanation. Another suggestion is that Paul is an outsider here, and he may even be a person who is uh, under a cloud of suspicion. Even though he greets a number of people by name, it is not at all clear how well he knows them, and he is not the founder of this church. He does not have the kind of relationship with them that he has with believers at Corinth or at Thessaloniki. So he has to proceed with care. This may especially be the case if they have heard rumors about Paul that are something less than enthusiastic. For this reason, he concedes things. He says, yes, we uphold the law. But then he seems to take it away with the other hand. We uphold the law, he writes at the end of chapter 3, only then to say in chapter 4, but, but the promise didn't come through the law. So there's a little uh, shifting of weight here in order to stay, to retain his audience. But there may be another reason, in addition, that really goes to the heart of the letter. Uh, The poet Timothy Steele has written that in poetry, the form gives you a way not only of expressing things, but of understanding them. The medium makes you look at phrasing and thought from different angles and almost inevitably leads you to think about elements of this or that experience or subject 
in ways you would not have otherwise. That is to say, decisions about form are integrally related to content. To go back again to the speeches of our recent memory, a number of people have commented, some of them rather critically, on the understated rhetoric of President Obama's inaugural address. By comparison with the famous speech in Iowa, or the one in Berlin this summer, or his amazing address in Grant Park on November the 4th, this speech to some seemed subdued. Why was that? I don't think it's because his speechwriters got a B plus for that occasion, as has been suggested by a couple of people, but that I think this was a very calculated decision that reflects his awareness of the weight not only of his own position, but the challenges that confront the country as a whole. The form and the content, or the style and the content matched. By using this argumentative feint, this striking medium of expression, Paul does something more than just keep his audience alert and tuned in to what is being said especially in the many passages that move in these unexpected directions, and I've given only a few examples, I think Paul is inviting the Romans to see that God also has moved in unexpected directions and that the old expectations no longer apply. Two of those. We'd say a lot more about each of them, but I won't. Uh, according to the old expectations, could see this in chapter 3, there is forgiveness for those who repent and change their behavior. But Paul's letter to the Romans argues that God has shown in Jesus Christ that no one does what is right, and that God has nevertheless redeemed all. And all means all. It's striking that the word repentance is virtually missing from Paul's vocabulary as is the word forgiveness. According to the old expectations, Jew and Gentile are separate and unequal, with God's favor falling on Jews and on those Gentiles who manage to worship Israel's God, only on them. But Romans argues, again, that God has redeemed all. More astonishing, God has used Israel to save the Gentiles and will finally use Gentiles to save Israel. Truly, we have here a fruit basket turnover. If those are the things Paul wanted to say, then we shouldn't be surprised that he chose to compose this particular letter in a way that constantly invites its hearers to draw one set of conclusions, only to pull the rug out from under them once again. Thank you very much. Questions? Do you? Yes, Questions, comments, complaints, alternate lectures. <laughs> yes. Can you talk a little more about your argument that, or can you substantiate your argument that BB is the one who is intended to read the letter? Are there other analogies you draw from other letters or other potentiating Well, there's nothing specific in the text. I mean, he doesn't say Phoebe's going to read the letter. Uh, but by and large, when, when any work, a letter or uh, a novel of any sort or, or a, a philosophical treatise, was circulated, it went from one group to another, and you would have to have someone to explain it, to read it. Since he sends this letter of, of uh, introduction for her, uh, it seems likely to many people, at least, that she is the one who brings the letter. Now, there's a debate about whether she reads it or not, and you know, none of us will know in this life. Um, 
but and Robert Jewett, whose commentary I mentioned, thinks that she wouldn't have, that this would have been beneath her, that she because she is such a, you know, a respected figure, she would have had someone else do it. Uh, I find that argument in a Christian context where Paul is really trying to upend a lot of old uh, assumptions about what people do, I find that a fairly strange argument. Uh, there's no one else mentioned who might have read the letter. So in a way it's an argument from silence, but we're left with that a great deal of the time dealing with first century texts. In Paul's other letters to these kinds of readers? No. No. Uh, the question was, are there references in other texts to, to these kinds of readers? No. Except the, the one I mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. But you wouldn't have to... You, you, you know, it's, it's... Here we're talking about expectations, right? Uh, if I write you a letter, I don't say at the end, I'm going to put this in the, my mind. But I wouldn't typically say, I'll put this in the mail and put a stamp on it, which is however many cents it is now, and take it to the post office, because you know that's how letters get to you. Uh, by and large, we're, we're quite clear from papyrus evidence and elsewhere that this is how letters got to people, uh, sort of largely by courier. Yes? I, I assume this reading is taking place not in one sitting, so it's going from meeting to meeting, it's always being read by someone, whether Tibio or someone else. But my question concerns the basic idea of, not as an idea, but as to what is meant by faith. When, when you have, uh, in one provision, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So you just read it, you can't have faith, or where is the faith now if it's in the Bible? It's a great question. Well, you see, I think what he's doing in that particular passage, this is a much longer question, uh, answer to give, but I think in that particular passage what he's doing is he's saying that faith only comes as a gift. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing because it comes from preaching, preaching becomes from somebody who's been sent. Who sends that person? God does. So faith comes only by um, uh, by. Uh, God's gift. Um, I want to back up to your thing about you assume it was would always be read. This is one of the things that's so hard for us. I think he probably, uh, I think probably in these letters were read as a whole. Uh, I, I think it's not at all unlikely. It takes about a couple of hours as I understand it. I've never read it aloud all the way through myself. But again, it has to do with our culture being so much not an oral culture. But we know that, you know, it hasn't been that long uh, in American religious life when t uh, people were expected to hear sermons that went for an hour or more several times on Sundays. Uh, in certain traditions, they still do. So it's not at all um, unlikely that they would have heard the whole thing. Yeah. Dr. I like what you said about the, uh, the form content and how you were fishing for language on... Um, yeah. Do you, have one, do you have one for me? Uh -huh. yeah. An author that you reminded me of, um, Eugene Peterson, yeah. is doing that whole series yeah. on uh, yeah. you know, uh, theology and spirituality, the conversation, yeah. and just I connected those two, but I, I can't yeah. give you a bone moment. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it got to find a term. I need a yeah. term. <laughs> Thank you. He's, yeah. He's, he's fighting the same battle. That's any help. Good. Thanks. It is. I wonder who would be uh, fruitful to think about uh, an early uh, kind of context to put us in about no one ever writes alone. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was a wonderful notion mm -hmm. and uh, stirred up a lot of things in me, as a matter of fact. But couldn't you make, might not it be productive to suggest that one never reads or listens alone? Oh, yeah. And to consider that and to yeah. do that or Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's another, you know, what, one of the things that I think is helpful to us, uh, especially with these letters that are so, in some ways removed from our experience, uh, or we hear, them in a, we hear them in a very specific context, and it's hard for us to think of them as actual letters. You know, we think of them as Christian texts, which they are. But sometimes we hear a little 
you know, we'll hear something differently if we can think of it in a different way. One of the, the games I play with myself is uh, to ask, how was it heard? For example, there were almost surely slaves in these congregations. Almost certainly. You know, by some estimates, uh, at least 40% of the population of the Roman world was enslaved. So it's not at all unlikely that these are slaves. Some of them may be freed persons who still have obligations. So when Paul talks about being a slave of Christ, what do they hear? You know, so it's that, that sort of thing. I, I like to ask myself, what would a person in Rome... We think that many of these... Um, uh, of the Christians in Rome in this period were uh, people who had, I don't want to say immigrants, but um, were originally from the East, uh, from Greek areas who had been brought there, perhaps as slaves in a previous generation. Part of this has to do with the names themselves at the end, because you can isolate where a name appears uh, in, in uh, legal texts, and you can tell where, where this person is apt to have come from. Right, just as we do all the time, and um, so we we think they're mostly immigrants. So one of the questions would be, how does this sound to them? So yeah, we do, we don't read alone either. Uh, and if you know, if if I say something that uh, in a classroom, and I, I can sometimes catch a glance, and I'll know, uh oh, you know, there's some little current here that I don't know anything about, and I've just stepped on something, you know. I just tripped somebody's nerve. So. Well, what, what sparked the question, though, was a, a very interesting kind of segue to another topic that you covered. It was the whole issue that this gentleman mentioned about form of content. Uh -huh. Because I thought you played a trick on us. <laughs> you, used, you used the form to make it think that the reader was in quiet isolation in the way you delivered it. And that caused me to think, well, oh. that's not always the case. Oh, Although interesting. Your form did convey to me yeah. that yeah. in one sense you were influenced by yeah. others, in the other you were starkly alone. Yeah, as a reader, you yes. mean. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you. I'll have to think about that some more. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking as you spoke early on that oftentimes we think of Christianity as the people of the book. But ironically, the early church was not a people of the book. Right. It was the people of the story. But I'm thinking of other uh, peoples and traditions where, for example, many Native American communities resist putting the story in written form because the story, the oral tradition, needs to be told. And it is in the telling of it that is the, the, the story of adaptation and survival. Mm -hmm. So, and, and also the resistance to writing something down because once you write it down, you fix it. Mm -hmm. But what I got from you is the sense in which this, that even writing it down, it's not, yeah. Yeah, but, but in telling the story and, and the rhetoric involved and, and the movement, like it's alive mm -hmm. in a way that uh, is, is in some ways a vessel mm -hmm. <laughs> of communication. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's much more alive than a book. Anyway, I yeah, know. yeah, I know what you mean. I, I think that's an interesting uh, comment. That I, I, I don't know where it is now, but I remember reading um, a discussion in later Jewish literature about why the Mishnah is not written down earlier. There's a debate, but they don't want to write it down because part of the thing is that you know what happened to the uh, what we call the Old Testament. We wrote that down, and look what happened to it. You know, the Gentiles got it. Um, so there was a, a resistance to putting uh, Mishnah in writing for that very reason, that it becomes fixed. See, no, oh, yeah. Well, what do you make then of Paul not using the words uh, repentance or forgiveness? Um, yeah, I realized as that came out of my mouth that that's a whole different lecture and that I was sort of, you know, calling that up. Um, I, um, I don't think he has anything against the language, you know. Um, I mean, you find it elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not that, that it's not in the Bible. Uh, what is remarkable is that it isn't in Paul. And I think the reason is that Paul's understanding of the human situation 
is that humanity is in a sense captive to powers of sin and death and they can't repent it doesn't I mean you can't repent your way out of this if you're a prisoner doesn't matter how often you repent you're still stuck that's why he also doesn't use the term forgiveness because it's not big enough the problem is bigger than that I mean I I think Paul's analysis of the human situation is is really uh, I think it's dead on target and uh, and and rather uh, uh, remarkable but it's but it is quite distinctive too and it, it bothers me when people want to make it sound like everybody else's that you do get that element in the Bible many 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 places you get in Luke Acts here is Christian preaching what you need to do is repent and believe and be saved that's not quite the way it works in Paul it's not that you repent it's that God has to you know the problem is one only God can fix Before coming here, I did some background on you and your uh -oh. book, The uh, Paul and Mother. Uh -huh. And I was really taken to the idea 